Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. On today's What Fuels You podcast, I will be talking to my friend Richard Tate, a tenacious and brilliant entrepreneur originally from Scotland. You may know him for co-founding the top-selling game Cranium or finding the Seattle-based energy drink Galazzo or for his impressive work earlier in his career at Microsoft and most recently at Starbucks. He's been called one of Seattle's most successful entrepreneurs and is now a judge on GeekWire's Elevator Pitch. Richard is a perfect example of being someone who believes in following your dreams, and he sets an incredible example to all dads out there for his love and commitment to his family. Welcome, Richard. Hello, hello, hello. I had to add the dad thing in there because that, honestly, like as your friend, is one of the things I love most about you. I just think that like you prioritize your kids in such a way, and um, when you talk about them, you just beam. It makes me happy as a mom. Oh, well, yeah. I love them so much, and I'm trying to do a better, better job. I'm sure they could tell you that there's room for improvement, but I do the best that I can. Uh, we're all in a, a constant, <laughs> uh, yeah, work in progress. So we're going to start uh, with rapid fire. Okay. You ready? I am ready. I love rapid fire. I love it. First, uh, you're the only one I've started with this, but what fuels oh. you? That's the name of the podcast. So what fuels you? Because you're like such a passionate guy. What fuels you? Um, I love bringing delight into people's lives. Everything I've ever tried to create was driven by a particular moment or a particular emotion that I was hopeful I was going to provoke and bring. And usually it's with a smile. Like my, I love smiling and I love to bring smiles into humans' I lives. I love that. I love that. Um, I'm also driven. I've got, a ver- I've got a weird confliction, which is I'm driven by a fear of failure rather than the glow of success. And I wish, I hope by the end of my life I've inverted that. But, oh, um, that well, is that's something. like the hate to win or hate to lose versus love to win. I would say happiness and bringing smiles into people's lives is what fuels me. I really, I love it. I love doing it. And you're good at it. And what do you think is the greatest invention? My kids. Um, <laughs> the greatest. I loved Cranium. It was a very unique and special time. I've been so fortunate in my life to have invented so many different things and, and been a part of great teams. Really, that's been the beauty of them all, has been the collection of people yeah. that have joined me in pursuing those. And what's uh, your favorite band? Oh, my God. This is hilarious. So I grew up in Scotland, and when I grew up in Scotland, there was two bands that I loved. One was U2, which are Irish, of course, but Simple Minds um, was the Scottish band. You guys are all too young to remember them. I'm but they, not too young. They played at the Moor Theatre last week, and oh. Amy and I went to see them at the Moor Theatre, and they crushed it. They had this um, African-American drummer. Uh, I'm sure she was probably British, but she was this black Afro-out girl, 25 years old, on the drums, just thrashing it. I always I can see you being a drummer. I did play the drums. You played the drums. I what wasn't else? very good, but I did. I've played. I played. My mom and dad made me play the clarinet. I really wanted to play the saxophone. I don't that see you. Yeah, that's, with yeah it. of course. But <laughs> I think drums do too. Drums is yeah, like. I, I yeah. like. I like playing. The drums. I, I like that. drummers. That's my favorite part of any band. And if you could be born into any generation or be like in your twenties in any generation, which one would it be? Oh, right now, I think the world is tumultuous as it is right now. I think there's so much opportunity that um, I'd actually like to be younger than 20 right now. I recently had the chance to visit um, Blue Origin, and when I went home at night and had dinner with my son, who's 14, Deacon, 
And I told him about my day and how extraordinary that visit had been and the magic of it all. And he looked at me with this intention in his eyes and he said, Dad, I'm going to be the first Tate in space. And Aww. I said, oh, you probably are, young man. You probably are. I love are. that. He's oh, a great gosh, I feel kid. like he was just 10. Like, I, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. He's 14. So, okay, what's your biggest fear? we got to go dark. Um, letting people down. You know, I, I really, in everything that I do in my life, I've certainly had my fair share of disappointments. And, um, but I, I think going back to that fear of failure versus glow of success, it's, it's letting people down. I, yeah. I think since I was a small boy, I've... I've had that in the back of my head. Well, that's, that's a perfect transition because I actually want to talk to you about your childhood. Like, you grew up in Scotland. I I've did. never been. Are you I a was golfer? Born, no, I'm I always not. think of Scotland my and dad I think is. of golf. I was born. I have the same birthday as my mom. I've had a fantastic childhood. My parents were extraordinary. Yeah. And I was born at home on January the 17th, 1964, on my mom's birthday. I feel very sorry that I've stolen I told you that Max was born on my birthday. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's not fair. And I was me. born <laughs> in a town called Broughty Ferry, which is just close to Dundee. And I lived there until I was about 10 years old. And then we moved from the east coast of Scotland to the west coast to a town called Helensborough, which is about 22 miles outside Glasgow. And how are they different? I, I mean, I can't even picture these towns. Um, they're like the small town? Yeah, they're both both relatively small, and they're both on the water. One's on the River Tay, and one is on the okay. River Clyde. Um, and how would they be different? Like, what could you compare them to here? I think Helensborough probably has... Um, how could I compare them to here? That's a great question. Um, I think Helensborough was a more prestigious... My dad moved for a better job. Yeah. Um, and Dundee's an industrial town, which I like industrial towns. Um, but they, they were just different chapters in my different family. Different chapters in your family. And so... Um, did you go to public school? No. Oh, yeah, I went to public school, yeah. And in Scotland, there was only, there was like one school. We all went to the same school. Uh, when I went to work at Microsoft, there was 2,400 people. And when I went uh, in my high school, there were 1,700. 1,700 in your whole high school. And so you guys all kind of knew each other. Uh, we all knew each other, yeah. 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 And so, um, and you have two sisters. Where are you in the birth order? I'm the third. I'm the youngest. So You're I had baby. five years with my parents by myself, which was an extraordinary time for me to build a relationship with them. Just a great chapter for me. I still need to meet your parents because you, the way you talk about them too. They are amazing people. Yeah. They're uh, married for over 65 years. They still hold hands. They laugh all the time. They're the funniest people to be around and were great examples for me. I've benefited from my dad's drive and desire and my mom's warmth and sense of humor. Yeah. And I feel I have both of them living inside me. I love that. And so where are your sisters now? There's also I have one sister who lives in London and then another sister who lives uh, just outside Glasgow. Okay. Yeah. And so when you were a small boy, if we were like hanging out and, um, you know, in school together, would you be like the same Richard that I'm meeting today? Um, it's very interesting. My, when I worked at Microsoft, I was so intense during that time. That was for me from about 22 years old to 32. And my mom and dad thought I joined a cult, particularly in the first five years. When I did Cranium, my yeah. mom looked at me in my eyes and said you, sh that I'd rediscovered the boy that she knew. Oh. And when I was a little boy, I was incredibly curious. My parents were exhausted by the time I came along, so I think they left me to my own devices quite a lot. But they encouraged my curiosity. The greatest gift my mom and dad gave me was the belief that I could do anything and encouraged my curiosity. I love that. And they were so supportive. I love to that. This day. And so I know that you studied computer science and this school, Harriet Watt, tell me about that. I don't know this. Well, well, the interesting part, you asked me earlier about drumming. When I was a young boy, my family had, uh, my family were servants uh, for a, a com uh, family called the Templetons of Troon in Scotland. And my dad was the first one to really elevate our journey and change the path of the name Tate. And um, he ended up running Polaroid in uh, Europe. Wow. And so he really. How did he do that? 
I had inc- well, he was an engineer and he was an incredibly hard worker. And he demonstrated to me the power of just grinding it out every day and hard work. Um, and people loved him. I toured the factory with him many times and he was he was a good leader. I love that. Um, but what happened was he came home and I wanted to be a drummer in a band. I told him, he asked me, what do I want to do? And I wanted to be in a, a rock band. And how old were you at this time? I was 13. Oh, yeah. And um, my dad was a little stunned by that reality. And he, with a moment of parental genius, he brought from me from America, he brought a synthesizer building kit so that he got me interested in electronic engineering at the same time as my passion for music. So I started building and programming when I was 13 years old. This was in 1977, and I started with something called the BBC Micro. And I, st- I would program anything. You could have given me a hairdryer That's or a so microwave, cool. and I would have tried to program it. But that was, that was when I started to get interested in computers, and that became my my passion. Yeah. And then I ended up going. The geekiest school in Scotland is Harriet Watt, and that's where the engineers are drawn towards. It's in Edinburgh. And but I, I feel like you call yourself you you I've heard you say that like I'm geeky I'm the but I think of you as being like cool as shit. Like no, I wouldn't say geeky's now cool as shit. I That's know, great. but like no, but like no cool and a not like you're just so cutting edge and so on the on the front I don't know, forward thinking. I don't think of you as being kind of the introverted tech guy but in the I'm corner. Always, I'm always well, I don't think geeks are like that. I love science. I love engineering. I love how things work. I've always, when I was a little boy, I got that book, How Things Worked, and I just loved it. I read every page. It was beside my bed. And I just love understanding how something works. Are any of your kids like that? All of them. They're all like that. But different ways. Remy's really passionate about horses, but she's studying equine management at the university. And so she likes the behind the scenes. It's not, she's a fantastic writer, but she also likes the behind the scenes part of writing. Uh, Deke is very like me. Uh, Finn is passionate about um, language and loves the science of language. Um, so, uh, and then of course. They're a little like that. Yeah. That's super cool. And so, so you went to the geekiest school, quote unquote. Yeah, I was really proud to get in there. In my life, this will become a consistent theme in our conversation today. It's always a door that closes that results in another door that opens. It's happened consistently in my life. And often the door that opens is a much more joyous path. And what was the door that closed? When I was 16, I had the chance to get into college early. And so I applied to a college called Sterling University um, for early acceptance. And at that time, I was goofing off a lot. And I didn't take it seriously enough. And so I remember this haunting lunch with my family, all of them sitting around the table. And my uh, the, the letter came for whether I was going to get into college early or not. And I was so nervous about it. I went into the bathroom by myself and left everyone sitting at the lunch table. And I opened the letter in the bathroom and I hadn't got in. And I really should have got in. I had the capability to get in and I just hadn't worked hard enough to make it happen. And so I emerged from the bathroom and nervously sat back down at the table. And my dad is looking at me intensely um, and said to me, my sister was the first in our family to go to college, uh, to university, and I would have been the second. And he looked at me and said, so? And I, had to, and I had to tell them all at the lunch table that I didn't get in. And that was a wake-up call for me. And I was really determined to get into the best school that I could. And that was Harriet Watt. That's great. And so then um, I know that you ended up getting an MBA at Dartmouth. I did. But why did you need to get an MBA? Why did you want to get an MBA? So when I was and why in, Dartmouth? Uh, that's all great questions. And when I was uh, in undergraduate, 
I became very good at programming robots. That was my specialty, was um, uh, kind of early AI and uh, programming robots. And at that time, that was all that people wanted me to do. But I was the first student in my computer science class to come up with a business plan. I had an idea for a business when I was 20 years old. And no one in Scotland was going to back a kid. that All I had was being a paper boy. They were not going to back me to start a, a business. And I would the business that I had, I would do again today if I had the what chance. What was it? I wrote an expert system to help you choose the right computer and printer for when you for at home. It's even hard today. Like, yes. how do you know if you're buying the right thing? Well, they have they did like decide.com that yep. sold to they, eBay. I saw that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what else is there. I guess just. Um, but this was way before this. Oh, yeah. This and I'm the, like, before they even had computers, right? <laughs> right? No, we had them. But it was very early, very early on. So it was, it was, I thought it was good. So I couldn't get, uh, I didn't, wasn't getting the job that I wanted in Scotland. So I met with this guy called David Cameron, who's the head of the Scottish Business School. And I said, and he looked at me and he said, Richard, with your personality and drive, you have to go to a country that was founded on a pioneering spirit. And that country is America. And so he encouraged me to... like, how about Dartmouth? Well, no, what happened then was I, as a young boy, I uh, was motorcycle crazy and I watched a show called Chips on TV. We're we're still on season one. I love Chips. And so... I was raised on Chips. (laughs) My brother, I mean... I have a brother, so, yeah. and he was a motorcycle fiend. Yep. So I wanted to go to California. So I Is applied. Is that Ponch and John? Yep. I, I, I applied to uh, a bunch of schools, but the one that I wanted to go to was UCLA. And I didn't get into UCLA, but I did get into Harvard, Dartmouth, and That's other schools. That's kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, but my mom and dad were moving to Boston, and I saw it as a good opportunity to be relatively close to them. And Dartmouth was the same size of school as Harriet Watt was. And I was, you know, I knew that I was going to be a first-generation immigrant at 21 years old, and I wanted to play somewhere that was um, felt similar and familiar to me. So you said your parents moved to Boston? My dad came for a couple years. Did I miss all that? Aren't they in Scotland? They are in Scotland. uh, When my dad was doing well at Polaroid, he had the chance to set up a manufacturing facility in Boston for Polaroid. And so they moved to a town called Medfield, just outside Boston, uh, for four or five years. And so why did you choose Dartmouth over Harvard? I got Boston. delayed acceptance. I was one year delay, and I was in such a rush you that just I just wanted, wanted to get going. Yeah. And so I ended up going to Dartmouth. So did you love Dartmouth? It was, um, I wouldn't say that I loved it. I benefited from the experience, but it was first year of business school was really hard for me because I'd never studied economics. I'd never studied finance. I'd never studied all of those things that are so important. But you f- got into all these schools. I got pretty good grades when I was graduating from undergraduate, so I think that helped. Yeah. But I think the, I mean, the pioneering spirit, that was uh, that was everything I was living at that time was following yeah. a dream, moving thousands of well, miles Well, the story away. of your grandparents and your great-grandparents. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah, my grandfather, uh, I mean, he, his early career was as a chauffeur, and my great-grandfather was the gameskeeper. So it was a big transition for us as a family. So then what did you think? Would you, so you, here you are, you have your MBA, and you're thinking, now what am I going to do well, with This it? is another example of... One door closing. One, the, the company I wanted to work for was Apple. And um, I was such an Apple, such an Apple fan, and so dedicated to Apple. But they wouldn't interview me because I didn't have a green card at that time. Mm. And then along came a woman called Cheryl Newport from Microsoft in Seattle, a company I knew very little about, and a city that I'd never seen. But a person that I met that had this intensity, and um, uh, she was so passionate about working at Microsoft, and the the. Interview. So you met her at like uh, she on, came campus on campus recruiting? Yeah. Okay. And it was such an amazing interview. And I reached across to her and I said, I don't know what Microsoft's like and I don't know what Seattle's like, but if you represent the culture, please let me come. 
And she uh, offered me the chest to do that. I know it changed my Are you a person who kind of uh, generally goes with your gut? Yeah. I I mean, it sounds like that's an experience where she offered you the job on the spot or like... Yeah, I mean, it was. I still had to come out to Microsoft to see it, but she invited she invited me out, and she represented everything that I believed in at that time. And was that consistent with what you experienced oh, once yeah. you got there? Well, her first, my first boss was her husband, Peter Newper. Where are they now? Uh, they're in Bellevue. I still see them. Um, That's super cool. But, but are they, is she still at Microsoft? No, no. But so, Peter's still involved, uh, I think, in and around Microsoft. But she was she was absolutely right. She represented the culture, and when I got there. Um, you know, it was an amaz- amazing experience. So how, how would you describe the culture when you got there, and how did it change uh, by the time you left? Well, remember, when I got there, there was about 2,400 people. So it w- And we were, we were pretty much a hunt-and-kill culture. I mean, our job was, this was at the dawn of client-server computing. So this was, the PCs were still relatively nascent. Uh, certainly computers in business were, ve- PC computers in business were very nascent. And we were creating history. And with when you have the chance to create history, you have to accept the level of conviction and the challenges that are going to be represented. And that was the journey that we started. I worked on operating systems at first on a thing called OS2. Um, but that was at the time we were competing with Lotus. We were competing with WordPerfect. We were competing with Novell. And every business that we were competing in, we were the underdog. And that was incredibly motivating for me. I loved it. And then as it grew, by the time I left, there was probably about 70,000 people. That's incredible. And, the, you know, it become a little bit, a lot more hierarchical and there was a lot more people. That was when I decided that I should try and do something new. Yeah. After 10 years, I felt like I had got the best, uh, Microsoft had got the best out of me and I'd had the chance to give them the best. Yeah. Um, and is that, is that where you met Karen, your, um, the mother of your kids? Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We met uh, in my second, sec- oh no, in the first year there. Yeah. Um, Karen was one of the early women. I came from a family, four of our five family members worked at Microsoft. So that was all part of their tapestry. Wow. That's amazing. And so um, the people that worked with you at Microsoft, I mean, now you've had lots of incredible entrepreneurial experiences since you left Microsoft. But how would those people describe you, the ones that you worked with at Microsoft? <laughs> um, Were you different than you are now? No, I don't think so. I had breakfast two days or three days ago with Ben Slifka, who was one of the guys that I worked with very early on at Microsoft. And we're still the same people. I mean, yeah. I find we talked about when we'd stumbled or the failures that we'd had to endure in life. And at that time, I don't think we were that vulnerable. I don't think we would have benefited or shared as much wisdom or the experiences that we've had that have been more challenging right. in our lives. Well, I've, sometimes it's easy to be vulnerable also when you're so successful because <laughs> you're like, what well, do I have to lose? You, well, also when you get older. You get I think, older. I mean, we were 23, 24 years old yeah. and where it was many, for me, it was my first career. And right. so sharing vulnerability at that time of life is a pretty sensitive thing to yeah. do. Yeah. And did you like Seattle or was that a... Oh, I love, I still love Seattle. I but when live, you got off the plane and you're oh like, my God, here it's I am. This, well, it's the same latitude as where I'm from in Scotland. Yeah. The geography and topology is similar. The climate's similar. I really love, and also I love the pioneering spirit. I've never felt more supported as an entrepreneur in a city like Seattle. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a great entrepreneurial community and a city that, you know, is one of the last settled cities and has that pioneering spirit to it. I feel very at home here. I love that. What was after Microsoft? Uh, this is a not very often told story, but I was so I, de- I was so depressed and struggling to try and find something to do and a new sense of purpose. And my dad had always told me I had a good face for radio. 
I decided that. Oh, wait, no, I do know this. You wanted to become a DJ? When I was growing up, there was a radio DJ in Britain called John Peel. And he had a late night show and he broke all the bands that I grew up in. I grew up with the Sex Pistols, the Dam, the Clash. All of those breakthrough bands were were born from John Peel's radio show. And I wanted to be the John Peel for America. So I went back. It's not too late. Uh, well, I went to Bellevue Community College, and I took radio. I did DJ, read about this. Radio this DJ classes for seven months, and then I tried to get onto the mountain. And I was a dismal failure. Uh, the The person that I met at the mountain destroyed my any dream that I had of getting onto the radio. Um, and it, you know, in retrospect, it was the door that closed that resulted in another door that opened. But that was devastating for me because I was ve- feeling very insecure and I was trying to reinvent myself. And the first step that I took on that journey was one that exploded. Well, you're not a kind of person who can just kind of go through the motions of life. Like you're not a, you're a passionate person. So I would imagine that the other side of that is depression, right? You're like, yeah. I'm either in or I'm sad. Yeah. And I was super sad. I yeah. can remember taking the elevator. I was crying in the elevator to down in the building and the um, mountain building. And I stuffed, I had a little proposal with me and I stuffed that proposal into a garbage can that I still see when I drive past that building. I still oh. remember that moment. But it was it was it was another opportunity to pick yourself back up and try and regather yourself. But that was that, I'm, I was fragile at that time. It was it was a hard message to receive, but probably the right one, and that resulted in me going off and trying to invent something new. And so, tell me about the inventing of something new because you're an inventor. But this, um, you know, the game and had such incredible success, mm-hmm. and I love the story behind Cranium. But I want to know about the early, early days. Like, did you come up with the idea and then find your co-founder? Are you and your co-founder together? Oh, Whit was the... How did all that happen? Whit was the other Cranium guy, and we'd worked very closely together at Microsoft. Whit was the genius behind uh, many of the reference titles that we had, the World Atlas. He was a pioneer on the Encarta team. And him and I worked very well together, and and I knew that we'd be complimentary. But I didn't... I hadn't chosen him before we started working on Cranium. Um, as part of my, in my jammies at three o'clock in the afternoon, we decided that we were going to go to New York uh, for the weekend with a f- couple called Dan and Maggie. And so we ended up, it was a rainy Sunday and we'd flick through the newspapers and we'd read the books, but we were staring at each other wondering what we were going to do next. And they mentioned a word that still to this day will make me skip with joy. And that word is Pictionary. And they challenged us to a game of Pictionary. And we'd never been beaten at Pictionary. I challenge anyone listening to a game of Pictionary. You can do a straight line and I'll be, my Rushmore! And so sure enough... <laughs> and I'm the opposite. I suck. <laughs> well, but, but it's also Scrabble. I am pretty good at Scrabble. Well, then we're the yin and yang because the, immediately Dan and Maggie challenged us. We crushed them at Pictionary and they immediately challenged us to a game of Scrabble. And they're maniacs. They keep their Scrabble scores we, But they the also fridge. probably know, my, my husband knows the two, the two word, I mean, the two letter words oh. that you can just kind of study and yeah. know that like XI or something is like a word. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't that adept. Yeah. And so they crushed us at Scrabble. And as I felt like I was an idiot in front of my friends and family, I thought, why isn't there a game that has something in it for everyone? I and why that. isn't there a game? There is gives... Cranium. <laughs> yeah. So on the plane home, I started to sketch out on a napkin, classic napkin story of what a game like that would, what the experience would feel like and what would be the components of the game. And when I got back, I had nothing else. And so I went to Wit and I said, how would you feel about joining me and trying to create a game? And, and so, wow. And so you guys had um, any sort of structure around roles or was that just a free-for-all, like, let's just get out and start working? I think the roles became more, I mean, he's much better at ensuring the product gets shipped. I'm much better at the dreaming and the coming up with the concept. The vision, yeah. Yeah. And so we were a good complement for each other there. Um, 
But at the beginning, it was it was all hands on deck. I mean, we were writing cards in my living room. We were printing them on Wits inkjet printer. We were in Kinko's at night building prototypes. That's got to be for you, I would imagine, and knowing you, like incredibly fun to think about those days. Yeah, and I think of them very f- fondly. But I still get to create prototypes and that kind of stuff. The the cool thing with Cranium was we were hiding behind people's couches in their homes watching them play the game and learning. Our first playtest ever was in my dining room, and we picked eight of the hardest core program managers we could find from Microsoft, and they tore it to shreds. Oh, my gosh. If you'd had a baby and you held it up, they would have told you it was ugly. Um, (laughs) But in all of that critique, they saved us months and months of development time, and their, their critique was so acute and insightful and deliberate, it was easy for us to follow. Yeah. And so um, it was It was a powerful moment. It's hard to put yourself in that vulnerable position, but it's efficient. It's very efficient. <laughs> it's very efficient. And so I know that you sold, I've read this, that you sold your first million games without any advertising. That's so correct. How do you do that? Uh, with a lot of tenacity and a little bit of luck. Uh, the tenacity part was, well, first of all, we ordered our first run of games, I think about 27,000 games, and Whit and I had missed Toy Fair. Yeah, if I heard, gonna, I read that also. If you're going to create a game, make sure you go to Toy Fair just so you can get the lay yeah. of the land. Yeah. Well, we missed it. And so when we tried to sell Cranium to people, no one had any shelf space left. And so we were struck with the fact that we had all of these games coming on a truck and nowhere to sell them. And I was sitting in Starbucks with Whit lamenting about what idiots we were. And I looked up and I saw all of our target audience standing in line. Yeah, and I, I tur- And I turned to, we called them dating yupsters. And I turned to Whit and I said, let's take our games to where our customers are rather than where games are sold. It's perfect. And that simple sentence transformed the games industry. And we were the first non-coffee product to be sold in Starbucks. With the first, in Barnes & Noble. First game in Barnes & Noble. And each of How those did you st- make that happen? Is that, just a, is that a Richard thing that you just pick up the phone, fearless? Well, this is, I think one of the, the key tenets or, or um, traits of entrepreneurs has to be resilience and tenacity. And for me, we were trying to get attention at Amazon, and no one at Amazon would return our calls. I'd be, this is Richard from Cranium, click, 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 click. And I was like, how, how do I break through? And we came up with the idea of hosting focus groups with friends of the buyers at Amazon. We found out who their friends oh, were. Oh, brilliant. And so the next day, their friends would be coming into the office saying, oh, my God, we had so much fun. We played this game called Cranium. And then I would be getting the phone call of, hey, Richard, this is Amazon. And then with Barnes & Noble, I flew to New York. I'll tell two quick stories here. I, I like to, the stories. I flew to New York with my little game under my arm. I get to the meeting, and the woman comes to meet me for the meeting, and she says, what's that? And I said, with my chest, I would. I said, this is my new game, Cranium. And she said, we don't sell games. I'm really sorry that you've flown all this way. And I was facing... Yeah, def- you do now. <laughs> and I was facing defeat. And then I looked, and I saw two women standing by a water cooler in the office, so I went up to those two women at the water cooler. I said, will you give me 15 minutes of your time? They said, yes. I got the buyer into the room. I got my game set up. And then 15 minutes later, we were in 110 Barnes & Noble stores. Literally. Literally. Literally, it just took that one person to go. Well, her... she saw how much fun it was. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then th- that was it. Now, the last one I'll tell you was I wanted, to, good. I wanted to launch in uh, Britain with Virgin. As I'd grown up as a child, Richard Branson was one of my heroes. And I just loved his you know, his swashbuckling personality. And I thought it was a great fit for us with the game. And so I was struck with how am I going to get to Richard Branson? And then we had a young, at this time, young guy, Adam Tratt, who was her first employee. Oh, Adam. Yeah, he was our first employee. And he, he, he ran into my uh, area and he said... 
dude, dude, grab a game. And I said, what? What's going on? And he said, you have to go to Borders Books right now. And I said, why? And he said, Richard Branson is signing his autobiography. You've got to go. Go, get us in Virgin. And so I shuffled across Third Avenue in, in Seattle and then walked into Borders. And sure enough, Richard Branson was sitting there signing books. So I got into line with my game under my arm and waited till I was in front of him. And I'd read his autobiography and I knew that he loved to play games with these kids. And I, he said, we made a joke about my name. He said, what's your name? I'm Richard, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, what's that under your arm? And I said, it's my new game, Cranium. And he said, you know, I love games. And I said, yes, I do. I want you to play this with your kids. And then he said, do you have a partner in Britain? And I said, no, I want it to be you. And with four or five days later, he played it on the plane on the way home with his group. And then four or five days later, I was at his house and we what? were launching with Virgin. Yeah. And so I always I tell, didn't know this story. I always tell these. Oh, there's many. There's many. You're just like, this is, I want you to write a book. Well, you have I, to write a book like a day in the life. To get, you really, it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I read a book when I was a young uh, well, late teen, early 20s, called The Celestine Prophecy, which is very... I love The Celestine Prophecy. <laughs> it's very touchy-feely. No, but, but I love that. I liked it a lot. And it was at a time when I was feeling pretty insecure and it gave me confidence. And one of the areas of confidence it gave me was when I get into an elevator, I always say good morning and I engage. When I sit on a plane, I introduce myself to the person who's sitting on the plane. Wherever I am, I'm going to put myself out there, not in an awkward way, but just in a way that if there's the chance for me to build a relationship or learn from someone else's journey, or in this case convince someone to join me on a journey, then yeah. I'm going to take that opportunity. Well, that's why you're such an obvious person I was so excited to have on the podcast, because every time I'm around you, I learn. And I, I leave kind of fueled, you know, like just feeling full. Aww. And you're good at that. Um, oftentimes, I talk to the person next to me on the plane, but sometimes I'm like, okay, I don't bring my headphones. <laughs> headphones. Where are those headphones? And sometimes I'm like, all right. <laughs> one of the best stories that I have is one about a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Um, the same guy that we played, uh, the the Invent, the invention of Cranium came from is a guy called Daniel Katz. And Daniel and I will take a trip uh, every year. And uh, this time we were in San Francisco and he wanted to read books. And I don't read recreationally. So it was a terrifying experience for me just to go to a bookstore and pick a book. And so we went to this Rizzoli's, I think it was called, bookstore in San Francisco. Yeah. And, and Daniel's going around and he's collecting the Encyclopedia of Britannica. And I was actually stuck on the doormat and my feet just wouldn't move. I was so nervous. And so I put out my hand and I said, if there is a force, take me to the book that I should read today. And I closed my eyes and started stumbling through this bookstore. And my hand traversed so many spines of different books. But then my hand fell on this quite small book and my forearm tingled and my everything inside of me, every fiber inside of me said, this is your book. And I opened my eyes and it was this tiny little book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball by a gentleman called Gordon McKenzie. And I, I'm going to start crying, but I started flicking through the book and I had a lot of illustrations in it. And I thought, God, Daniel's picking up these volumes of knowledge. I can't pick up some kind of cartoony book. But I put it back and I started off again with my eyes closed. And the force said, that was your book. Go back and get it. This is like what is with the um, intensity around that? You'll learn. So I go back to get the book and we go back to the hotel room and I read this book six times in a night. I couldn't sleep. And this was right at a time where I didn't have the confidence to trust my own creativity. This was before Cranium really got going. I was, I was nervous about just whether I could trust my own creativity. And this book, it's all about instilling the conviction and trust of and celebrating creativity. And so I closed the book and I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do Cranium. 
And I was so inspired. I said, I'm going to call the author. What? I'm going to call the author and tell them what the difference they've made in my life. And so lo and behold, I go on the internet and good grief, Gordon McKenzie's written for Fast Company. And oh my goodness, at the bottom of the article is a telephone number. And oh my God, I can call him. And so I call him up and sure enough, uh, I get his answering machine. And I just say to him, I just want you to know that the book that you have written has given me the confidence to trust my own creativity. And I'm going to go on a journey and I'm going to create a game. And um, two days later, uh, he called me back and said, um, did I want to meet him? And I was like, of course, I would love to Where meet. did he live? Uh, he lived in uh, the center of the country. In a trench, I think it was Kansas. And um, he said, I'm going to be in Seattle next week to give a, a speech on creativity in the workplace to the Puget Sound Energy Board. And I was like, that's worth <laughs> Have <the> fun. <laughs> I said, that's worth the cost of entry right there. And so I go early. It's on an Adobe church up on, I think it's on 7th Avenue in Seattle. And I hadn't been in a church since I was a kid. So I got there early. I wanted to get the lay of the land. And I'm roaming around in there and I see there's a spiral staircase and I start making my way up the spiral staircase. And this is going to sound um, beyond belief, but this is exactly what happened. And as I got, the sun was shining really brightly through the window and through this haze almost of this light, a hand emerged and it, it said, Richard. And I was like, it's too soon. I'm not ready. And this gentleman reached out and pulled me forward and said, I'm Gordon. And this 70-year-old man walked, me, walked with me with his arm in my arm, taking me to this vestibule for this presentation. And his little tweed jacket and just a wonderful human being. And as I sat at the back of the auditorium, he was just sitting on the, the um, stage with his legs going like this. And uh, there was drawings, illustrations from the book on a clothesline behind him. And no one was speaking. It was very awkward. And then he said, you know, we can start whenever you guys are ready. And um, uh, eventually somebody called out one of the numbers that was on the illustration. And I watched him rediscover and celebrate the brook in front of this auditorium. And we created a, a real relationship together, which was wonderful, a part of that journey. He must be really proud. Well, is he's he dead. Still, I was about to say, now, if he was 70 then, then he's probably well, dead Well, what now. happened, the, the hard part at the end of that story, I would call him up and we'd chit-chat uh, every couple of weeks. And then one day I called him and I said, Gordon, how are you? And he said, how are you? That's a question that's asked by cashiers in supermarkets that don't really care about the answer. He said, do you really care? And I said, yeah, I really want to know the answer. And he said, I have pancreatic cancer. Oh. Uh, and he said, I only have a matter of weeks. And, and selfishly, I said, you can't go. I said, you know, you, you have more to do. I need to learn more. And he and, said, yeah. the book is my gift. He said, share it often. And oh. so me sharing the story with you today is part of that journey. And I'm oh. getting my oh. well, tingles. Of course, of course. Um, but he was very influential in my life and uh, as gave me the courage to follow my own creativity. That's incredible. Well, a lot of it is like the whole saying of like, lucky people are lucky. You know, like, I don't think of, I don't believe in that. I believe that you are a person who creates opportunity and creates, like, luck, quote unquote, because you put yourself in a position to, you it's, know, it's whether true. it's talking to the person on the plane or going out of your way to reach out to this author. A lot of it is just putting yourself out there and being open to the experience. And one of the best examples I have of that is one time I was in Houston uh, in Texas. I was on the board of directors for the toy industry. I was on that board. Mm -hmm. And I'd been on the road for about two weeks and I was really tired and I wanted to get home and see the kids. And I was walking through the, um, the um, lobby of the hotel and I picked up the USA Today and tucked it under my arm. 
And I was thinking, God, I'm going to take a nap on the way to the airport. And as I left the lobby, I saw this stocky African-American gentleman adjusting a knot in his tie and adjusting his cufflinks. And his mission for that day was to take me to the airport. I saw my name in the back of the car. But I was thinking, oh, God, I just want to go to sleep. And as I got into the car, um, he got into the uh, driver's seat and our eyes met, his ebony eyes met my Scottish blue eyes in the rearview mirror. And I had this moment of, okay, we're... I'm going to say something I'm to him. I meant to talk to him. Uh, I, yeah, or just the opportunity to strike a conversation. Yeah. And I said to him, how's your day? And he turned to me and he said, well, do you really want to know? And I said, of course. And he said, well, I've had a rough start. He said, I've got three little kids. Breakfast was really hard. You know, I'm trying to introduce discipline in the morning. I said, oh, I've got three kids. I know how that goes. And over the journey, which was only 40 minutes, this was like a David Lynch movie. The, the lines were going past us at yeah. a different speed. Everything slowed down as he started to share his journey with me. And, and I felt so ridiculous in you know, me facing the struggle that I had, which was just that I was tired and wanted to go home. And this gentleman shared uh, growing up in the South, overcoming so many challenges, racism, um, just his life at the beginning. And then he joined the army to escape and had done three tours in Iraq and had Afghanistan and Iraq and he'd come back and his then wife had come, moved out of state with another guy with their two kids and now he'd fallen in love with another woman. And he's woman. telling you all of this in all the 40 minutes. And uh, then he said to me, now I've fallen in love and I'm trying to establish myself as the dad to these three kids. And his stories were so well told and so powerful and meaningful in everything he said to me. And when we got to the airport, he got out and walked around the car and this strong hand helped me get out the back of the car. And he held like shaking as if he was shaking my hand. And he said, and he looked at me again, those ebony eyes. And he said to me, Richard, remember in life, it's not how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get back up. And he drove away and I can still see the red lights, the brake lights of his car as he drove away. And I wanted to spend another hour with him because his wisdom was so inspiring for me. But even when I'm saying that phrase to you, it swirled in my head. And in moments of insecurity now, I still use it as one of those things that I turn to and remind myself it's not how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get back up. Oh, it's it's huge. I mean, the tenacity, but... Is that happening to you? Because most by most people's definition, I mean, you're in the 1% of the 1%. Um, I mean, I fail every day. And, you know, what about your def definition of it? Uh, well, it has different levels. I mean, I, I had a company that went bankrupt last year. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm divorced. You yeah. know, I've got many aspects of my life where I can point to significant areas where I feel a sense of failure. But you also have a lot of self-awareness, and that's why you're focusing on them as areas for growth or areas for improvement. A lot of people just kind of brush that stuff aside. I always look at life. I've got one other story I would love to, to yeah, tell you. Um, I love that stuff. There, there was a, a moment during the time of Cranium where I was getting my shoes. So I always look for inspiration, and people always ask me about mentorship, and I, I get mentorship from a wide variety of people interactions. People you, but not or, formally, just not kind formally, of messages. Not formally, just that I have messages or learnings. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, there was a time where I was getting shoes shined at a Tully's coffee shop in downtown Seattle. And there was a gentleman there called Dave, who was the guy who's shining shoes. And when I went there at first, there was just two chairs, nothing else on the, his shoe shine box. And Dave, uh, African-American gentleman, was working so hard at the shoeshine stand just to, to try and get some traction and get things going. But I was intrigued by him. He was asking very interesting questions and carried on a dialogue while he was providing the service. And as time went by, I started to notice that there was newspapers, financial newspapers, that were left out at specific pages for people to pick up. 
And then progressively over the next year, all of a sudden there was TVs around Dave's shoeshine station and they were always on the financial channels. And again, I would watch Dave and he would have the interaction between people in the shoeshine stand. And then one day I was getting my shoe shined and he mentioned to me that he was going to be going off for a little while. He was taking some time off and he was going down to Arizona where he had uh, his motorcycle. He had a Harley Davidson motorcycle. And I was like, whoa, 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 Dave. I'm a motorcycle guy. Well, I did do that. But then I said, tell me a little bit about this Arizona. And he said, well, I've got a place down in Arizona. And I'm thinking, hmm, there's more to this story. Multiple homes, multiple motorcycles. So then what transpires, I eventually pluck up the courage to ask him, what's the gift? Like, what's what's the story behind the story? And he said to me, you know, I've realized that he didn't have a, a formal education, but he said, the gift that I was being given is I'm a very good listener and I know who to trust. And so he encouraged conversations between the financial community in these two shoeshine chairs. He provided the newspapers that prompted conversations around financial topics. He had the TVs playing on the finance stations. So whoever in the chair would either talk to him about it or they would talk to the person next to him about it. And he had built a portfolio of his own with his savings from the shoeshine stand. And I learned from him, sometimes you don't have all of the gifts, but if you focus on what your true gift is, then you can deliver your own sense of success. And I think for me, then I always compliment. I know what I'm good at. I'm a good storyteller. I'm good at You're a really good storyteller. I'm riveted right now. And I'm, I don't think we can edit this one. We just I, have to let it rip, right? Yeah. And I, I'm pretty good at inspiring people to follow a dream and a mission. But I know that I needed to compliment myself with other skill sets for me to be successful. Yeah. And I with Dave, then he focused on what his... I always talk about shots, Michael Jordan's famous shots. And Dave's shot was... Um, you know, being a good, being listener, a good listener and knowing who to trust. I love that. Yeah, it should be a movie. Go you know, it's, Dave. Yeah. Do you ever see Dave anymore? No, no, he's gone. And so the author, tell me his name again. The, Gordon McKenzie. Gordon McKenzie. Did he get to see uh, you through the sale of Cranium? No, no. Okay. He, uh, so I know you sold it for millions of dollars and that's exciting and cool, but it didn't ever seem like that was your driver. No, and I feel very fortunate. If we were, the world was going to hell in a handcart quickly in 2007 and 2008, and I feel as hard as it was, it broke my heart. And again, I felt like I let down the people who joined me on that journey. But at the same time, if we tried to sell that company six months later, yeah. it would have been a completely different story. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, and I'm sure people understood. I've never heard anybody say anything but incredibly nice things about you. So I don't think there are too many people who... I'm sure. I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are some. But I, again, you know, for someone who mentioned to you at the beginning of the interview that letting people down is my biggest failure, mm-hmm. then I always try and do the and best. So, how I can. do you think people misunderstand you? Well, I was intense at Microsoft, and I so think they understood that, understood you as being like I'm like sure an asshole or being I, a person who I'm sure I was bored. I did th- behaved sometimes borderline to that, and I have an intensity. I mean, I I recognize that. I've been given that feedback many many times by people in my life. That, mm-hmm. um, As your friend, I like it. I feel like energized by it, but I don't work for you, right? Um, and I would imagine it would be it would probably help me raise my game. To be honest, I'd want to be like Richard Reddy because you're you are. You and know I, what I mean? And I have many. But thank you for saying that. But I have many people in my life that I have that same. Uh, I've worked for Kevin Johnson for the last two years, and every time I had a one-on-one with him, it was a moment for me to be like, okay, game on. He is incredible. I feel yeah. so blessed to have had the time with him. And yeah. I've known him. I, I knew him at Microsoft, so we've known each other for more than 25 years. So you got to learn a lot from him. When we're kind of Gordon's age and when we're in our 70s and 80s, what will you look back on and say that you kind of 
the mark that you hope that you leave, aside from putting smiles on people's faces? And that my kids are happy. And that your kids are happy. That's, as a parent, I get it. That would be the number one thing for me. We have lots to talk about on that. (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, very very, um, stressful when your kids are stressed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was told once that you're only ever as happy as your unhappiest child. And I think that's that's very, very true. So true. And ha- when you have three, you're usually one. Well, I have at four. Least... I have oh, four. Oh, you have four. Oh, yeah, because oh, yeah, Amy's. Yeah. Yes. So I have uh, Remy and Finn are the 19-year-old twins. Yes. Deacon is my 14-year-old son. And then Bella is 10, and that's Amy's daughter. Yeah, four kids. So, yeah, when you have four, it even increases the odds that at least one is struggling with something. Yep. So, yeah, it's true. But um, if I'm if I'm Gordon's age and looking back, um, I really feel I felt so fortunate at Microsoft to be on the frontier of four waves of innovation, client-server computing. Then um, we started something called the Solution Provider Campaign, which was a value-added new channel of distribution, which is super cool. Then I got into CD-ROMs and did multimedia and then the online apps, you know, selling one of the first cars on the internet, one of the first homes on the internet, uh, Sidewalk, which was before Yelp. I feel so fortunate to You've have... You've done a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, I feel even in the failures, you know, Galazzo was a, an amazing I journey. Loved Gala- I loved Galazzo. Yeah, you did. I remember you were very supportive. And there was I many people. It. And I wish the learning from you there, there was many learnings looking back on that. Um, uh and I had a hard time recovering from that. It was two, it took two years for me to really come back and emerge back onto the entrepreneurial well, you're not, you, Again, you put your all into it. Yeah. You were living, eating, breathing, the resources, the time, yep. the energy. And I loved it. it. I loved the community. I loved the passion of the team. It was, it was fun. But the last year was hard. Yeah, super hard. I want to fast forward to this GeekWire elevator pitch. Oh, so fun. How did that come about? Well, I am, It's so perfect for you. Oh, thanks. You're good at it. Uh, I tried my best, but I was inspired by it. I have been a huge fan and advocate and reader of GeekWire since the very beginning, and I love the team there. And so John contacted me, and he told me about the concept, which I thought was breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, I watch Shark Tank all the time with Deacon. Um, But I thought uh, the concept of the elevator pitch was so Seattle, so disruptive, so fun, that I could, there was no way I could say no. I yeah, thought no, it was perfect. such a great opportunity. And I have a huge respect for everyone that was on and the team as well as the fellow judges and for the entrepreneurs. So that was both a great opportunity and also introduced some challenge on the show because people were at different stages. Totally. It's a really interesting time to be in Seattle right now. Oh, I think so. Are there certain kind of um, attributes that you find are kind of a common link among those that you like to hire? In general, is there, are there attributes that you're like, people who are successful have X, Y, Z? I love to find how people think versus what they know. So I think experience is very valuable, but I focus on problem-solving skills and the ability to tackle problems. So I will always look to see how, even if they don't answer the, the question completely, what was the, how were they approaching the problem? How mm-hmm. did they break the problem down? I love empathy. Um, I hired Satya at Microsoft. And so uh, during my interview with him, he was so smart, so smart. I read this about the baby. Yeah. Well, at the time, I was, I was just trying to think about how, uh, how was he thinking about being compassionate? He was so smart and so articulate and so good. But I could sense that there was something around empathy that I had to dig deeper at. And so I asked him if he came across a baby who was crying and abandoned in the street, what would he do? 
And he paused thoughtfully as he always does. And then he said to me, I would call 911. And I was like, dude, you pick it up and you cuddle it. You console it. And he and re- then comments. <laughs> and he comments. That the, and that was the start of my journey with him. And it was an amazing uh, two or three years that we had together. But um, he also, at the beginning of his book, um, Refresh, then he comments on that desire to be more empathetic and how it affected his personal it's life. It's interesting and the- that you picked up on it. Yeah. Well, I'm looking for those things because empathy results in compassion, results in being able to understand customers. You know, that's that is a key trait. It's something that I would look for in an interview that doesn't come across. It's just the what did you do at Boeing in the four years that you were there? Yeah. And so are there go to interview questions that you kind of that are that you use? And also, which roles do you think are hardest to hire? Hmm. Well, sometimes the heart. I was very fortunate at Cranium Laterally to have a CFO called Bob Barton, and that was the person that I need needed. I should have hired him earlier. That's a big regret that I had. I interviewed him earlier in Cranium's journey, and um, that's an example of where there's a discipline where it's not my strongest discipline. But he understood me and what I wanted, my vision, and he would have complemented my skill set. So those the harder. It's not that they're harder to hire for. They're just the best ones that you have to look for. Where are the areas that you're not strongest and where you have to compliment? And be aware of what those weaknesses are that you have to compliment. Go-to questions. Oh my God, I have a library of questions. That you are do? You, Will I you do. send them to me? Yeah, we should publish them. Will you them. send them to yeah, me? Yeah, we should do that. That would be really fun. No, for real. Yeah. Because I feel like I've been doing this for 25 years. Mine are getting a little stale. Well, that's and, actually... And I can read... You know, I can Google things, but I, I think I'd like to learn from you. I could talk to you for so many hours, and it's incredible. We're so lucky to have you in our community, and I'm so glad that you're engaged. I think that I can't really picture you just kind of settling into some job. Like if, if your next entrepreneurial experience uh, just completely takes off and you're running some $100 million company, I can't picture you just being like, this is great. You're going to go do it again and again and again. You're born to be an entrepreneur. I, th- I think that, well, I mean, my first business was actually delivering newspapers in Scotland. And when I was standing at the doorway delivering the newspapers, I smelled that they were making breakfast. And in Scotland, we have a breakfast called a bacon butty, which is bacon uh, rashers on a breaded roll. And then I looked into the economics of uh, bacon and uh, breaded rolls, and they were much better than newspapers. And so I built a bogey to pull behind my bicycle t- so I could sell people breakfast at the same time that I was selling them newspapers. And it's so the endless stories. You <laughs> have to write a book. I'll take the interview questions. You take the Richard Tate stories. It's really unbelievable, your stories. You're yeah, going to continue to have them. I mean, it's just who you are. I hope so. It's, it's what makes my life uh, joyful. Well, Richard, um, maybe next uh, time we have even more time, we can just go completely off topic and just talk about all the random. I want to talk about all the stories because this is a blast. Thank you for all the inspiration you're bringing yeah. to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 